Well, let's go ahead and stand this morning, and we'll say our prayer on the top of the handout there. As we begin. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, enlightened by thy Holy Spirit, those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the same spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here. I wasn't sure, now that you had a confirmation Sunday last Sunday, if any folks would show up. So thank you so much for showing up. I really, uh, I really appreciate that. It's very, very encouraging to a priest. You've got to encourage your priest, you know? It's very encouraging when you guys show up. So thank you so very much this morning. Again, we've been uh, going through our class. We said the class is, revolves around three big questions. What is, the, what is the church? That was the first big question. We did that for the first five classes. What is the church? And now we're on what is the church's faith? And so we did a one class before we did our long break, one class on that, and we're going to come back to that today. What is the church's faith? Before that, though, we have a retreat this Saturday. It is this Saturday. I remember asking and saying, is May 7th okay for everybody? And everyone was like, oh, yes, May 7th is fantastic. Well, it is here this Saturday, May the 7th. And so that is the date of our retreat. And just to talk about that here for just a moment or two, this is our schedule for the retreat. Again, we'll start the retreat at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we'll have a light breakfast. And we do mean a light breakfast. Light breakfast uh, for about 15 minutes, get to know each other, put some name tags on probably. Uh, and then we'll um, break out into, we'll do a morning prayer. So we'll get to worship together and get to maybe be introduced, if you've never done it before, morning prayer. We'll also look at the life, of, uh, life in Christ, kind of the ethical part of the class. Look at ethics real fast. And then at, then at 11 o'clock, we'll have a reflection time, maybe even sooner than that. We'll have a reflection time where we can kind of go and pray, and I'll give you some direction on that kind of thing, uh, so you're not just left out in the wilderness. But we'll kind of split up and spread out throughout the entire church, if you'd like to, all different places you can go. And um, we'll do some reflection time. And then we'll come together from 11.30 to 12.30, for an instructed Eucharist and actually come into the church and gather them the chancel pews, what's nice and intimate, and then even gather around the altar and do an instructed Eucharist and explain why does the priest do what he does? Or why does the priest do what she does? <laughs> um, uh, and uh, kind of, uh, so we're, there's more instruction along those lines. And in the last 30 minutes, we'll of course have lunch and take any questions that you might have. And I got nothing going on I got nothing going on, so I can stay as long as you want. So, you know, it ends at 1 o'clock, but if you have more questions, I got no life. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. So, we can go on for a few more hours if you want, if you have all, a bunch of burning questions. So, anybody listening to me on the recording, too, you're also invited to the retreat this Saturday, May the 7th. And again, we'll start at 10 o'clock in the morning and work our way through the morning. So, again, it's a required retreat for those who are confirmed, or fearsome, foursome. Uh, last uh, Sunday, uh, but for anybody else to take the class for instruction purposes, you're more than welcome to come to the retreat. Uh, it is part of the class, and so you're not getting the full class, the full experience, if you don't come to the retreat. So come to the retreat. It's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, you might want to think about a $10, $15 donation just in terms of food, 
uh, help offset food costs, but again, that's not required or anything. Uh, but just come and we'll have a wonderful time this Saturday, beginning at 10 o'clock right here at the church. And we'll gather in the commons. So let's gather in the commons to begin our morning together. Any questions on that? All right. Anybody listen to the recording? Any questions, just email me and I'll do my best to answer those questions. Oh, yeah, one more thing I should say. One more thing. This is kind of the important thing. Let's do an RSVP by Wednesday. So just simply call Mary at the church office or write an email. You can email me if you want to as well. Uh, but just do an RSVP by, let's say, end of the day Wednesday. So we get kind of have an idea of how many people are coming. We're not like getting tons and tons of food and, and wasting everything. All right. Now, with all that being said, let's move on. And again, last time, after a long, long break, and also one more thing, too, about our fearsome foursome that got confirmed last Sunday, we're going to hand out certificates today in the 1030 service. So there's another chance to show you off. You're like, show, show, uh, show horses at this point. We're just, we keep showing you off. So one more chance to do that. You'll get your uh, certificates there in church this morning. So there you go. Before we took our long break, we were asking the question, what is faith? And we talked about how the creed begins with we believe or I believe. Both the creeds begin in that form or fashion. The Latin word is credo. And we talked about faith as a matter of trust or also the idea of, of credit. When we trust someone, when we have faith in someone, we're actually crediting someone's account. We're giving credit to someone. And so faith, the definition we have, is to believe, is to give something over and to credit someone's account. So when we have faith in God, we're actually crediting him. We're saying that his, his character is trustworthy and we can actually believe in this God. We'd also talk about the Bible, how the Bible is that sort of trustworthy testimony to God's revelation. And we said this prayer here by Thomas Cramner. It's also in our prayer books that we say um, one of those Sundays after Pentecost. It's a really nice description of how Anglicans approach Holy Scripture. How uh, God has caused all the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. And then we are to, uh, we're asking God to grant us so to hear them. How do we hear them? Well, we have to read, mark, learn, and digest them. Well, what do they do for us? So we might be embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which God has given to us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, of course, our Savior. And, of course, he lives and reigns with the Holy Spirit. One God, more on that in here in a second, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A really nice description, very quick description of how Anglicans approach Holy Scripture. They're very important to us. We want to hear them. We don't always understand them completely. We get that. <laughs> but we want to hear them. We also looked at the five acts of the Bible, kind of the story of the Bible. And just really quickly, here they are, creation and fall in Acts 1, first 11 chapters of Genesis. Then you have uh, the largest portion of the Bible is the portion on Israel, uh, more the history part of the Bible. It goes the whole way through the rest of the Old Testament. Except for those portions, well, yes. The history and also the wisdom, I should say, of Israel, too. We'll combine that together. Then, of course, the New Testament begins with the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
They give us the story of Jesus, his ministry, and then, of course, his death and resurrection and his ascension. Then, of course, the church. Right now, we're going through Acts. After in Easter time, you go through Acts, and so we're going through Acts, going all about the church. And then there was one I think I left off, which I apologize, and that is Act number five, which is the book of Revelation. How will all things eventually become? And this is a great uh, quote here. We will be like him, but we will see him as he is. And that really is what the entire Bible is moving toward. And that is that Act 5, where we actually see him, where we actually are like him because we are with him. And we also see him for who he truly is. So let's get into our, some new content this morning. Let's get into the Father Almighty. That's what's our topic for the day, the Father Almighty. And of course, there's two handouts there as uh, Chuck is coming in and he's getting two handouts. He's got both of them. There you go. So again, just kind of again to review uh, the idea of credo, the Latin word for I believe or we believe. It's how both creeds begin. And it begins for us, I think, kind of the three-legged stool. Anglicans like to talk about the three-legged stool an awful lot. How do we understand God's revelation? We believe it comes through three different ways. Holy Scripture, of course, is the main way. It is the leading sort of thing, the way in which God reveals himself. But the other thing is also tradition. And tradition is very, very important. In fact, if you only have Scripture but you don't have tradition, that Scripture can mean all sorts of different things that you want it to believe. And we, and we know that Scripture is being used, the Bible has been used for very, very, very unrighteous means in history. Oh, I can tell you lots of stories. All the way from slavery to war. In fact, the Bible is even used, being used as a um, purpose right now for a current war that's going on. Okay? So the Bible is used all the time to justify some things that are very, very unrighteous. So you need Bible, you need tradition, and then we also talk about reason as well. Reason, of course, being that our minds are formed by God. So our formed minds are now discerning truth. And so reason is also a very important part of that stool. So scripture, tradition, and also reason. When we talk about tradition, which we're going to talk about really over the next two class periods, we're really talking about the two creeds. Now, tradition means an awful lot of things, and again, a whole, it's a whole big stew. So you can read a bunch of church fathers and church mothers, it will provide for you the tradition of the church. But it's all summarized, though. It's all summarized in a very simplistic way in the two creeds that we have. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And we'll get to reason uh, in the last two class periods uh, uh, of our class. There we go. I'm on the wrong one. So again, uh, a little bit of a view on the difference between the Nicene Creed and the, uh, the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed is that Eucharistic Creed. It is the one we say on most Sundays. It's what we affirm and we pray before we go to the Lord's table. So it's a Eucharistic Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the Baptismal Covenant. It is the Baptismal Creed. And so therefore, traditionally in a Confirmation class, you teach the Apostles' Creed. You teach through the most ancient thing you can possibly get a hold of. That's what you do. And the Apostles' Creed, of course, is more ancient than the Nicene Creed. It goes the whole way back 
to the early church in the second century. And it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the apostles wrote it. It's because it is a creed that becomes, that evolves within the faith of the church, and because it so summarizes the apostles' taught and the apostles' doctrine that it's attributed to them. So before we talk about the content of the creed, which we do in the next, this class period today, and also in the next class period as well, let's go ahead and stand, and let's actually recite the Apostles' Creed. These are the fun things you get to do in confirmation class, and I love them a lot. So the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. So again, we say that, if you recall, we said that last Sunday for Confirmation Sunday, right? We had a confirmation. We all stood up and we did the baptismal covenant. The first three questions that the bishop asks us, the response back was just quoting back to him the Apostles' Creed. We will do it again. We do it again on May the 15th. Why May 15th? Because we have it on May 15th, a baptismal service. Because someone amongst us is getting baptized. I'm very excited about this. Lucy Stewart's going to get baptized. Uh, John's daughter, and we're very excited about that. So we'll be, again, quoting the Apostles' Creed in the service. Another reminder to us of our wonderful faith. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm hang on to this. So I believe in God. That is the first four words of this creed. I believe in God. What does it mean to believe in God? To place faith in that God who is revealed in Holy Scripture and whose nature is summarized in the creeds. So notice what we're doing there, and that's sort of definition. We're saying it's revealed in Holy Scripture. Scripture is so important to us, but whose nature is also summarized in the creeds. So Scripture and creeds together, as you can see. God being the fourth word in the creed doesn't merely refer, refer to God the Father. Does not merely refer, refer to God the Father. Rather, it refers to the one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, as you can see here, the structure of the creed helps us out an awful lot. So I believe in God, the first four words, then you have a comma, and then you actually describe who is that God? The Father Almighty, and then we say something about the Father Almighty. Second paragraph, Jesus Christ, and then we say things about Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And the, th the third part is the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Is actually probably a better way of putting it. And then we say a bunch of things about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. If you look at the Nicene Creed, it's the same structure. 
The creeds always have a three-part structure. It's always telling you and defining for you who this God is. Not who this God is in a formula, but who this God is in action. So the creeds are really action movies, if you will. We're not going to define things. We're going to tell you what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done, what this one God has done for redemption. So Christians, just like Muslims and Jews, are monotheists. It is a belief in one God. However, however, where we separate, and by the way, it is okay to talk about separation sometimes. It is okay to talk about differences. So Jews and Muslims are not Christians. Where we separate is this, is what Christians believe about the diversity that exists within that one God. The Jews, the Muslims, do not have diversity within their one God. Christians are unique. It is a unique claim. We say that God is one God, but that one God is a triune God. And the structure again of the creed shows us this. The three paragraphs that tell us of that one triune God who eternally exists in a community of love. In a community of love. What is the community of love? It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Evidence is a trinity in the, in, the, uh, in the Bible. Obviously, the clearest that we get is in the New Testament. But we do have some hints in the Old Testament. And part of what we do as Christians and how we read the Bible is we get trained, we read the Old Testament for how it's going to show us the New Testament. But then we get in the New Testament and get baptized into that world. We get immersed into that world so then we can actually go back and to reread the Old Testament in a proper way. When we go back to the Old Testament, read it in a proper way, we see some hints. We see the hints. We see in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, Let us make man in our image. It is the plural pronoun. Let us make man in our image. In Isaiah chapter 6, it is holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Addressing God, it is three holies. But again, you also have the sense there of it being one God. That, of course, is the words of our sanctus that we say each and every Sunday. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. So it's, it's a bit obstructed, for sure. So you need the eyes of the, Old, of the New Testament to actually read it back and to be actually, actually be able to see it. The pl two places where it's the clearest is, of course, in the New Testament. And it's very interesting. It's in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's at the very end of his ministry. The very beginning of his ministry is, of course, his baptism. As St. Augustine says, the Trinity appears very clearly. The Father is in the voice. The Son is in the man, being baptized. And the Spirit is in the dove. So you see this picture of the Trinity very clearly in Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism inaugurates Jesus' Jesus's, uh, ministry. So it is this man, it is this uh, Jesus without sin who is coming and who is being immersed into the Father's ministry. It is the way he inaugurates his ministry. And at the end of his ministry, before he ascends back to his Father, what does he say? Go and teach and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. 
what is Jesus doing now? Jesus, who was commissioned at the beginning of his ministry by his Father and by the Spirit of God to do his ministry, now before he ascends back to the Father, is commissioning the apostles. But through the apostles, commissioning the bishops, and through the bishops, commissioning the church. And of course, the church, he's commissioning all of us. We are the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he leaves this, this planet to ascend back to the Father, he commissions all of us to go teach and to baptize. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you can see how it bookends his ministry. What about the signs of the Trinity in creation? I mean, if God created the world, if, it's, if that's true, He's created the world, then there must be some handprints, there must be some marks of God in this creation. And if God is so, but this is actually who God is, He actually is a triune God, well then, I must be able to see that out in His creation. And I believe we can. We, say it, we see it in, in three different signs of the Trinity. We see it in marriage. Marriage is a very important sign of the Trinity. Now, I will, I will admit to you, it is not three, it's two, right? It's two persons, right? Diversity. And they become one. And they don't just become one on their wedding day, obviously. But they have, that's a shared commitment every single day. And oh, Lord, we all know about marriage. It is an everyday commitment. Lord, it is. An everyday commitment to love each other. And though we have differences, we are going to actually experience communion. We are dedicated to this, to being one, right? That's marriage, diversity and unity. Family. Family are many different members who are very, very different. And all we are very different than our fathers and mothers are very different from our siblings but we share the same substance. That's the unity. We share the same name. We share the same blood. We share the same heritage. And what's interesting is, just as a tip here, just to kind of look at people who try to get away from their families. I'm trying to get away from my family. It's very difficult to do that because it's so ingrained into who you are. Right? People have troubled families and we get that. Got to get some distance, got to create boundaries. We all get that. That's a very, very healthy thing to do. But you can't ever truly separate away from your family because it's ingrained in who you are. So we have diversity, but also unity. The church, that's another one. Very, very different members. And I'll be the first one to say, here at St. John's, we are very, very different people. Okay? How we go out and discern truth out in the world and like the smaller things of life when it comes to politics and culture. There are people in this church that are very, very different. We're made up of all different kinds of stripes in this church. But we all come together, though, around those most important truths. The most important truths being the truths that are there in our creed. We believe that God is a triune God. We believe that we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have communion. And so it's diversity, but we're brought together by the same substance, unity, the same faith. We share the same faith. And that forms us into oneness. I'll give you another one just to throw one out at you. What about the United States of America? 
Listen to the very name itself. The United States. Diversity. Lord, what diversity. Compare Mississippi to California. That is some diversity right there. Very, very different states made up of very, very different people, different cultures. So many things that are different. But of America, not America's, one America. And as one very wise person once said, here is your gift. Here is your unity. Here is your democracy. Here is your republic. And let's see if you can keep it. So one of the very interesting things that's very, very relevant about Trinity, always relevant Trinity, and I always, again, have to put my eyes up in my head when people say, well, it's just the Trinity. It doesn't, it's not really relevant. Who really cares? It's like Nothing's more relevant than Trinity. That is the perfect community of love, unity, and diversity. And here, there's no more relevant conversation than can human beings actually get along and are human beings actually willing to get along? It's an ongoing question in the church, and it's an ongoing question in our politics as well. Right? That is an ongoing question. We have a great gift, but can we keep it? That's the big question. So it's very, very relevant. So the Trinity doesn't make mathematical sense. We get that. It doesn't make much logical sense. We get that. But part of our faith says that while our faith is based in logic, it goes beyond logic. While it's based in evidence, it goes beyond just evidence. It goes to something that transcends rational understanding and it rises to the level of faith. Well, we certainly see the evidences in God's creation, these communities of love. And that's what a marriage should be. That's what a family should be. That's what a church should be. Communities of love that reflect the most important and ultimate community of love, which, of course, is the triune God, God himself. So that's kind of the, the first four words there. I believe in God. Now let's actually start to describe this one God. So the next uh, three words are the Father Almighty. Now we're getting more specific. Now we're getting down to the first person of the Trinity. Now I, I was throwing out a second ago when we talked about family and also church. I was using the word members, right? Members, a lot of different members, and they're all kind of different. But another word we can throw out is persons. The church is made up of a lot of different persons. When we talk about tr uh, Trinity, uh, uh, language of the Trinity, Typically, the, the word that gets thrown out is the word persons. You have the first person, the second person, and the third person. And they're all different. They are different. But there's also complete and beautiful oneness. That, of course, is one God. That, of course, is the idea of substance. Maybe a word we could use is the word substance. So persons and also substance. So now we get more specific, and now we're talking about the first person of the triune God which is the Father Almighty. And we can see there right away, he is talked about in two different ways. He is Almighty and he is Creator. Almighty and Creator. So first of all, the Father Almighty. The idea that the Father is the generator of all creation. So that's one sort of theological term that gets thrown out a lot, is the idea of the Father being the generator if all the power goes out and we're down to the generator, we know that everything's coming from that one specific spot. Any power that you have comes from that generator. And the Father, he's often sometimes called too by church fathers and other theologians, 
uh, energy. And that's very appropriate. God is energy. From him comes everything. So God is the Father, the generator of all creation. In the sense that everything that is not God owes its existence to God. And all, that means, of course, all humankind is, of course, the offspring. So there is nothing that uh, owes its existence to something else other than God that's outside of God. And, of course, Scripture is full of passages that describe God's parental tenderness, especially toward the poor and defenseless, which is very important for us to remember. We cannot exploit the poor. We cannot exploit the defenseless because our God is on the side of them. And that means that we're opposing God if we do those things. Psalm 68 talks about how God the Father is the father of the orphans and defender of the widows. Sometimes those images are of motherhood. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Of motherhood. So one of those passages is Psalm 131, verse 2. So I thought I would open up the Bible and read it to you. So what it says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother. My soul is like the winged child that is with me. This idea of of the psalm praying to God and asking his mother, asking God to calm him because he is, of course, uh, God's child, but but putting it more in the terms of the feminine, more of the mother side of things. It's important to realize that God is neither the male nor female. He is God. When we get to the second person of the Trinity, we'll talk about how the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and took on being a male. But God, of course, is neither male nor female. He is, of course, spirit. He is God. He transcends, uh, transcends um, a gender. A very, very quick word, though, really quickly. I know this could be a whole form of a whole lecture. And maybe it needs to be at some point. It's actually a fun topic to think through. The reason why masculine, pro, uh, masculine language is used an awful lot, and certainly the reason I use it in the pulpit, and unashamedly so, is because that is the language that comes to us from the Revelation. So again, what, what's taking place here, we'll get to it in here in a second, um, but, but because that language is being used, that of course is the language that, that I think is most appropriate to use, the idea that God is the Father, and it's language, of course, of family. But as you can see here, there's also a precedent for using, you know, feminine as well. And when we get to the third person of the Trinity, there is one, uh, one denomination of the church, the Orthodox community, that will exclusively use, you know, feminine pronouns and feminine language to speak of God the Holy Spirit, because he's so associated with the, with the church, and the church, of course, is a feminine, uh, feminine word there. But that's, that's kind of the reason why. But, we're not, but when we talk that, that kind of way, we are not saying that God is male. I hope you understand that. That's because this is the language that is analogical language. And that's what I want to get to now. So the other description here is that God the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, notice the language of family being used. It is the language of family that is being used to describe this interrelationship within the Trinity. So this language, uh, this analogical language, 
the language of analogy, which we're saying that God is not, in essence, really a father, but it's language that's used by analogy so that human beings can actually understand what's being said. The analogical language, it's been the language chosen by God to reveal himself. Because it best describes how this father and how this son, how this first person of the Trinity, how the second person of the Trinity is existing together. How they choose to be in relationship to, together. Jesus is the incarnated Son of God. So he's the incarnated second person of the Trinity. So more on that next week. But God the Father is eternally the Father of God the Son. And the Father eternally begets the Son. And the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now what does that mean? I'm not really sure what it means. Totally, right? We understand what it means on a human, on a human side. Jim Dietrich beget James Dietrich. That's my father. And we understand that I was not in existence, and I was brought into existence by the work of my father and my mother, my biological father and mother. We, we understand, we get that. We understand the idea of beget or begotten in that kind of human sense. What it means in the sense of when you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit that has, that has always existed, it means something differently. But I think an insight into what it actually means is this right here. that The Son eternally submits to his Father. Now think about that for just a second. We know the Father and the Son are equally God, equally powerful, equally created all things and brought all things into existence. However, we see one submitting to the other. One choosing to do that. Choosing to be dependent upon the other. I choose to be dependent upon you. I don't have to. And I don't need, I don't truly need to. But I choose to. Because this is the community of love. It's called the idea of like mutual submission. Mutual giving of myself. So this is what we talk about when we talk about this being the most beautiful community uh, that we have. And all communities that are beautiful are based upon and are reflections of this perfect community between Father and Son and, of course, Holy Spirit as well. So that's part of what that means. It's not all of what that means, obviously. Also the idea, oh, then, of course, you get that language in the most famous verse in all the Bible, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his only begotten Son. So in some ways, the Son is begotten by the Father. But what we know it does not mean is that somehow the Son, at some point, did not exist, and then he was brought into existence, God, created, or the, God the Father created him and brought him into existence. We know that is not true. That is not true. But again, it's this idea of a mutual submission in terms of relationship. The father is also the father of Christians by adoption. So he's the father of all Christians by adoption. So through their union with the only begotten incarnate son, as we are in Christ, part of the reason why that language is very important, being in Christ, that means that, uh, that we are part of, 
and are grafted into this new family of God. That we are, to kind of extend things here, we are actually in some ways brought into the very life of God. We are brought into the very triune relationship of God because now we are in Christ. So therefore, if we're in Christ, we are in Trinity. We are part of that relationship. So it actually turns into a very beautiful thing when you start thinking about that and uh, what the implications of that, of that means. As St. Paul says, but when the, full, when the time had come, God sent forth his Son. Let's just stop right there. That's showing us what? That's showing us the submission between God the Father and God the Son. One is coming and the other one is sending forth. Right? God the Son doesn't have to come. God the Son doesn't have to listen to his Father, if you will. Um, he does it because he submits to God the Father. And so God the Father sends forth God the Son. God the Son is born of a woman, who of course is a who? Mary. Born under the law, which is what? The Mosaic law. That same Mosaic law, that, which by the way, makes us fully guilty. Makes us fully guilty. So it's going to redeem those who are under the law, meaning us, human beings, so that we might receive the adoption as his sons. We are received as adoptions by his sons because his son came and we are grafted into him. And because we're in him, now we are actually in the very life of God. When you start thinking about that and, and kind of thinking through that a little bit more, it actually maybe also helps us to reinterpret maybe how we think about creation itself. Because that's the other part of what the Creed says. So the Father Almighty, and then he is creator of heaven and earth. The idea of creation. We know the Bible says, it's in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This, of course, is the first and in many ways the most fundamental thing that Scripture has to say about God the Father. He is, in fact, the creator of all things and everything that is. That all things come of him. That God created everything that is. Again, this claim does not, uh, not include the more uh, peculiar, peculiar, more specific claim of creationism. Creationism would teach the universe was created in six days. And is 6,000 years old. That is something that has been proven not correct by additional information. And the information that science has brought to us. But all, all truth is God's truth. And so we reevaluate that. That's not what the Bible is truly saying. The Bible is saying something differently now. Not now, sorry. The Bible has always said something differently. But now we understand it. What the Bible is truly saying. What the Bible is truly saying, I think, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is not necessarily a claim about the history of the universe. It's not necessarily making a claim about the history of the universe. It's making a claim about the nature of all things. The nature of all things is that all things exist by God's very gift. They exist by God's very hand. And how God has done that is perhaps given to us in some detail, but for the most part, probably stays somewhat mysterious. But one very important consequence of the doctrine of creation, again, not creationism, but the doctrine of creation, is that God, in terms of quality, is different than us. That is also what Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to tell us. 
God is different than us. Creator and creatures are wholly different. They belong in wholly different categories. God is supremely beautiful and good in his very essence. And that means that all of his gifts are also beautiful and good. But they are not him. Right? They are not him. They are down a few levels. But his gifts reflect the giver. But this is kind of what we were referring to earlier, the idea that God creates everything as a gift of love. And that means that creation is about relationships and communion. Relationships and communion. It is, in fact, I think, God opening himself up. So sort of the idea is this. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this perfect communion of love that doesn't need anything. Doesn't need anything. But yet chooses to open itself up and extend itself. And how does it open itself up and extend itself? It does it by creating something new. Something that is different than God, but something that is beautiful and reflects God. And something that is in perfect communion with God. At least it was in the beginning. So actually when you start getting your mind, I think, wrapped around that, it actually becomes a very beautiful image of creation is the act of God opening himself up because he wants to create beauty in different ways. God is ultimately a creator. And the whole creation contains signs, of course, of his presence. But of course, we understand the fall. We understand how uh, that creation was broken and that communion was defiled. There's two different falls, of course. The fall of the angels. It's talked about sort of as the backstory. The Bible doesn't really uh, give us a whole lot of details, but in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, we have this backstory of how uh, the angels did fall and disobeyed God. The chief of all angels was Satan and falls. And then, of course, we have the fall of creation in Genesis uh, chapter 3. But really, as we talked about in the last Sunday school time, Genesis 3 through Genesis chapter 11 establishes a whole pattern of human beings falling. So it's not just about Adam and Eve. And chief among them, of course, was human beings. So you have Satan, chief among this first fall. The second fall, you have chief among them as human beings. But all creation falls. And the devastations caused by the fall has traditionally been understood as the doctrine of original sin. The idea that we are born as human beings, born directed away from God. Directed away from God. So we are born damaged, and we're born into a damaged world. One of the reasons why baptism is so important, and one of the reasons why we are so joyful when we see young people or older people come and embrace the waters of baptism. Because it's only by God's gift of grace that we're able to turn our backs upon the old ways and turn toward the good way, turn toward good, or turn toward God, I should say, and be grafted into this relationship, into this perfect communion, into this triune God. And of course, that is what, the, what uh, God the Father uh, chiefly does for us. We've got about 30 seconds left, so any comments or questions? Yes, ma'am, we've got a question.
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that does circle around, Mary. Thank you so very much. So for the recording, Mary was talking about Matthew chapter what? 25, yes, about talking about the end times and talking about how we are sort of judged as human beings and judged upon the acts of charity and relief and, and mercy that we provide people, you know, going to their prisons and feeding people and all those kinds of things. Those are the evidences that we have been grafted into this perfect communion of love that we show love in the world. I mean, if you're not showing love in the world, but you're going off and exploiting the poor and not standing up for the defenseless, it shows that you have not been grafted into this perfect communion of love. And that's partly why, if I could just say one more thing, I would love to start a new tradition here at St. John's, and I, I really wanted to catch it on the whole church. I'm not sure why it hasn't caught on already. But traditionally, again, Pentecost Sunday is June the 5th. The Sunday after Pentecost Sunday is always Trinity Sunday. It is the first Sunday after Pentecost is always Trinity Sunday. It is when we think about and, and, and think about the Trinity being that perfect communion of love. But the next Sunday after that, which is the second Sunday after Pentecost, is what I would like to call here at St. John's Community Sunday. It is when we should be thinking about, okay, we just talked about the perfect communion of love and the Trinity. How are we going to apply that in the world in which we live? Which is kind of what Mary is talking about. And it just so happens that this year, that is June the 19th. Juneteenth. So, maybe part of what we could do is learn no more about June, uh, Juneteenth, more, more about that tradition, and, uh, and maybe talk more about that and how we celebrate Trinity Sunday, and then also celebrate communion, uh, Community Sunday. How we make our community in which we live more and more a community of love. How we make it more and more reflect the great God that we serve. How we defend the defenseless and care for the poor and all the things that Mary talked about. Just a thing to throw out at you. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Let's go off to church and let's again uh, worship the triune God.